This episode is brought to you by Avalanche, the layer one that is blazingly fast, low cost, and eco-friendly. You'll hear more about Avalanche later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everybody. We've got a good episode today. We've got Simon Taylor, special guest joining us on Empire. Simon is a... Per his Twitter bio, a uh, self-proclaimed fintech geek, uh, but more formally known as the co-founder of 11FS, which I think I can confidently say is one of the best crypto and fintech consulting and advisory firms, uh, dare I say, in the world. So Simon, my friend, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. I feel I feel like yeah. I made it. I'm going to make it because I'm here with you guys. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There's... um. I was talking to Santiago the other day about uh, like we're all going to make it and GM and some of these things becoming, I think, I think they're on the out. They might become cringe. And there was actually a video that was getting passed around Twitter the other day. I am the side of it uh, becoming cringe. Like I I think that's my purpose in life. So, you know. (laughs) So anyways, guys, usually on the roundup, as you know, we usually talk about like two or three big narratives and then we uh, run through some of the big news stories of the week. This is going to be a deep dive into Swift. We think that it is the most important thing uh, going on right now. There are obviously other stories that are important, and you can check out Twitter and BlockWorks for that uh, and our newsletter and stuff like that. But this week, we're going to focus on Swift. Some other things that we might talk about next week are like uh, like SolidX and uh, uh, the anchor proposal proposed by um, who is it, Arca and Paradigm and some of those other things we'll probably talk about next week. But again, we're going to focus entirely on Swift here. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, this was inspired last week. I mean, I think a lot of people are talking about Swift and very few people understand how it works. And so in that journey, we decided to go out and find what we thought was someone that can come in and incredibly talk about the, the system called Swift and give us a better understanding. I hope, I hope We hope that this format is going to be a very deep dive into that and inspire further discussion um, on everything that's going on. So welcome, Simon. It's great to have you here. No, thank you guys so much. You said something really interesting before we were recording, Santiago, which resonated with me, which was a lot of people talk about Swift, but very few people know what it is. And I I, I kind of worked in a bank for a number of years, and uh, my job was to deal with payments. And I never thought that that would become a weird superpower. Um, It's unfortunate it took this for it to to be the case. Um, But actually, just sometimes understanding it can help you make sense of what's going on and understand why people are talking about it so much. And then, of course, what the impacts may or may not be on crypto. Um, So I think it puts a lot of context around it in in a really helpful way. So happy to get into that and unpack it with you guys. Definitely. Amazing. So here's the update right now, Simon. We're recording this March 3rd, midday. Swift has recently complied and barred at least seven different Russian banks from its network. Here's what I know about Swift. Swift stands for the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. That's that's all I got for you. That's all I got for you. So why don't we just go as high level as possible? Many people think of Swift as a payment system. They are wrong, according to your uh, really helpful uh, Substack and tweet thread that I read the other day. So let's go high level. What What is Swift, Simon? Swift is not a payment system. Swift is a messaging system. So think of it like email. 
um, except it's a type of email or HTTP or um, SFTP is probably the closest example, realistically. Um, used by 11,000 banks in 200 companies, they, they send each other messages. And essentially what they do is they go, hi, I've got a customer that would like to pay you. And the bank number two goes, oh, thank you. I've received your message. And then bank number one goes, okay, I'd like to move this amount of money. I've changed my uh, ledger, I've changed my accounts, I've changed uh, my wallet, if you want to think of it that way. And bank number two goes, okay, got your message that you've changed your accounts, I'm going to change my accounts now. So you end up in this like tennis of messaging back and forth and back and forth between the banks. Um, and so I guess the takeaway from that is Swift doesn't actually move money. Banks move money. And I think that's a really important thing to realize is pretty much everything else is, is messaging or an abstraction uh, you can think of banks all having their own crypto network, their own chain, um, and they're, some, they're somewhat decentralized. They just use messaging between each other, uh, and then they all have this massive wallet with all of these accounts in it, like a custodial wallet almost, uh, and they update those after having sent each other messages. Um, and then you got to realize that this messaging system comes with all the risks of being regulated. So like... If I'm sending these messages back and forth between the banks, then at some point I'm going to deal with a regulator coming along and saying, hey, did a good guy send that or was it a bad guy? So I think insight number three is banks are the police of money. So they've got this messaging system, this massive custodial wallet that has all of their customers' accounts in it, and they're on the hook for putting in place the blocks, the controls, the rules that help deal with everything in financial services, every kind of risk. So think about Swift as email, think about banks as the, the custodial wallet and think about um, their role as the police of money. And I think that's probably a good starting point for like, actually Swift isn't the thing here, banks are the thing, Swift is just the email kind of equivalent. And if you're gonna block somebody from Swift, it's like blocking them from email, but only with these banks and only for international wires. Swift only does international wires, essentially. Hmm. Uh, again, probably a silly question. If it's just messaging and it's just email, how does the money actually move? That is down to our friends Nostro and Vostro, which literally means yours and mine. So let's, let's take a real example, HSBC and Chase, right? So uh, HSBC wants to move money to Chase. Um, what HSBC has is an HSBC account so it's it's my account. And it opens an account for Chase. It's yours account, Nostro and Vostro. Latin phrase, it means yours and mine. Now that's mirrored over at uh, Chase, who has a Chase account, which is their my account, and an HSBC account. And so what they do is after they've sent all of those messages between each other and they've agreed how much they're going to move, they move. Uh, so like HSBC is paying Chase. So HSBC says, I have moved the amount I'm holding in my account for myself down. And I've moved the amount I'm holding in the account that I hold for you up. So let's say it's $100 down in the HSBC, HSBC account and $100 up in the HSBC Chase account. Then you go across to Chase and you go, okay, got that you've done that. Thank you, HSBC. Now in my Chase, Chase account, I have moved up $100, and in my Chase HSBC account, I've gone down $100. So it's this 
debit credit, debit credit on both sides. So you've got this duplication that's happening and that's in the account for each other. And only once they've done that in the Nostra of Ostros, once they've done that in the account for each other, do they then update the customer account. Now, that's a relatively simple transaction. Um, and what will actually happen is they don't do that for every single payment. They'll net a bunch together. So think of it like batching it into a block, right? They'll, they'll do this end of day. They'll wait till all of the transactions have happened, stick them into a single file, and then net off the difference, which looks like um, layer two scaling. <laughs> I was going to say, it reminds me of uh, like the lightning. Net. Yeah, it reminds me of L2s. <laughs> so the light, it's so weird to me as a payments guy looking at the lightning network going, oh, you've invented netting. Like this has been around in banking forever. It's just you're doing it with way better cryptography and, and way better technology and a lot more privacy, frankly. Yeah. Um, so so that's that's how money actually moves. And so that's called settlement finality. And there's this whole thing in regulation about um, when has money actually moved? When has settlement actually occurred? Because everything else before it, like there are a lot of cases where money looks like it's moved, but it actually hasn't. So if I just take... Um, a debit card transaction. You walk into a store, you swipe, you get your thing, you walk out with with your, um, I don't know, you bought some gum or whatever. Uh, you think the money has moved. You see that the money has moved in your you know, Chase checking account app or whatever it is. But actually the money doesn't move for another two, three days, which is, which is kind of wild, right? What's actually happened is you've authorized the money to move an auth. And then the settlement, you know, the banks are going to figure that out over the next couple of days. So, there are so many abstractions in financial services because the technology was so slow when it was built that people don't realize this stuff. You know, I'm going to get a lot of crap for saying this. The first time I ever heard about the Nostro and Vostro accounts, if I'm even pronouncing that correctly, is was on a Ripple uh, article in like 2018, <laughs> I think it was. And uh, I, I remember it because it was such like an... Uh, an amazing amount of money in these Nostro and Vostro accounts. It was like, I think Ripple's claim, it was from like the, a McKinsey study, was that there's like $5 trillion uh, sitting oh, in these Nostro and Vostro accounts. And that this is just like dormant money, otherwise known as like unproductive money that's just like sitting there and then eventually just gets moved into accounts, but more and more comes into the Nostro and Vostro accounts and then it goes out. And that's just kind of like dormant money. Am I understand? I mean, this is from a post I read probably three years ago. So am I understanding that correctly? Uh, is it dormant? Technically, yes, but technically, no, because it has claims against it. So, like, it might be needed at any minute. So, mm, um, but what interestingly, what Ripple was pitching was um, an abstraction, like another abstraction. Like, the money would still sit in an Ostro and Ostro. You would just use it in Ripple to do other things because ultimately, the definition of settlement, the definition of money, always winds up to one of those Nostros and Ostros and a bank ledger somewhere. Everything is an abstraction on it. Even Ripple would have been an abstraction on it. So Ripple was building like an open loop PayPal. So when I put money into PayPal, I'm taking money out of a bank account and uh, kind of moving it to PayPal's bank account. And then I move money in this little PayPal network and then eventually it goes out to a bank somewhere else. So you're always on and off ramping in a way from the underlying settlement at a bank, even with these other payment methods. Like they're, they're just creating these other networks that abstract over the top or create layer twos over the top. Got it. Let's go back to Russia for a second. So, and, and Swift. So, okay, so I'm I am a bank in, I'm HSBC in London and I am a, uh, and then I've got Santiago is my banker in Russia or I've, is sitting, is working at a bank in Russia and I, there's like a, I don't know, 
$300 million that is moving from HSBC to this Russian bank. What's actually going to happen is I'm going to message Santiago over Swift, over Swift, right? It's like a, this tele, mm-hmm. like a email network or whatever and be like, Hey, Santiago, I'm move. I've got a client who wants to move $300 million. Or I've got maybe like a hundred clients in total. It's $300 million. Uh, like, and then, and then what happens? Santiago in Russia is like, okay, cool, approved, or what's what's going on there? Approved, and then like, great, send the money, and he like says, great, send the money. So do you remember I said banks are the police of money? Yes. So banks have to perform a whole bunch of checks before they can even make you a customer. This is why they do KYC. So the biggest risk is somebody that we don't want to be moving money around the world does move money around the world. Um, so, for example, human trafficking, modern slavery, arms dealing. There are a whole bunch of horrible things that happen in the world that law enforcement puts banks on the hook for to prevent. Um, and you can make an argument for, like, you might want that in a lot of cases. Like, it's not, not necessarily the worst thing in the world. And one of those things that you have to prevent is sanctions. Uh, and so the way a bank will prevent a sanctions breach is essentially with KYC and customer due diligence. And the way they do that is ask you for identity documents and ask you for like information about your address and all of that kind of stuff. They want to know who you are so that they can see if something goes wrong, who did it and report it to, to law enforcement. So your bank in the US or HSBC, for in, in, in this case, I hate to pick on them, like there are many other banks in the world, um, but they have to know before they send the money to this bank in Russia, A, that they're allowed to send it to that person in Russia, B, that you're allowed to send it. Um, and the way that they uh, the way that they do that primarily is with the KYC. So they know who you are. It's like, oh, look, it's Yano. Like I've, I've seen him before. Um, he's been my customer for a while. And then the other thing they'll do is check this uh, this long naughty list, the OFAC list, if they have any suspicion that you previously grew up in Russia or you had businesses there, they check that OFAC list. And if your name pops up on it, they'll just block that transaction um, and, and kind of go from there. But this gets more complicated when you're dealing with business to business transactions. So if I'm a big company, let's say I'm an oil company and Uh, That oil company needs to move money from an office in one part of the world to an office in another part of the world. Who's that oil company owned by? Well, it's owned by a bunch of shareholders. Okay, which shareholders? So when you're dealing with companies, KYC gets a lot harder. You're starting to look for something called the ultimate beneficial owner or UBO. And what you see with that is you get this complex layering thing that happens. So look, what might look like um, a family office trust company in Geneva is trying to move money to Russia. But actually, that family office trust company is owned by a charity in another part of the world and a trust company in Delaware that owns a company somewhere else. And what you get is these like complex company hierarchies. And so now, and I'm still talking about HSBC before we even get to the bank in Russia, before they can move the money, they have to do all of this detective work. They have to get so confident that they're allowed to move the money because the price of getting this wrong is phenomenal. Um, BNP Paribas was fined $8.9 billion for getting these kind of checks wrong. Um, and they allowed, they moved money to Cuban entities, Sudanese entities, Iranian entities, 
Um, and this was when they were subject to sanctions or it was just, you know, sort of people close to crime and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So that um, pre-payment detective work is why sometimes SWIFT is considered slow. Because if anything looks risky in your transaction at all, then somebody, usually a person, yes, there's software, but usually a person has to go do this detective work because there aren't great lists of which company owns which company in different jurisdictions. Like that's that's actually hard to do. That is detective work. So it's not like SWIFT, the email network is being slow. And it's not necessarily like the bank systems are being slow. It's the risks that they have to manage that make it really, really slow. So that's just yeah. the HSBC side. We can cover off the Russia side in, in a second, but I just wanted to let you react to that because I talked for like a solid mm -hmm. four minutes there. No, that, that makes total sense. I mean, I, I am curious um, how this gets updated and who ultimately has the responsibility, for instance, beneficial ownership changes all the time. And, mm -hmm. and so when we see certain banks get fined over the years, which have been astronomical fines because they are enabling, you know, countries like Iran movement from sanctioned countries. Is it because they're just not really enforcing uh, ongoing KYC? So you might do KYC at the beginning and then they have, is there some sort of requirement to constantly update that? Or is it more on the underlying customer, that charity or that family office to say, Hey, listen, there's been a change in beneficial ownership. And then who has that responsibility? Because it feels to me like that's just a very like high maintenance cost and <laughs> and process that needs it to constantly be done. Yeah, I think it's hard being a bank. Like their, their job is is really really hard. Um, you know, I hate to speak out for those guys, but the back office of a bank is a very very hard place to be. Shout out to everybody that works in that day job right now, trying to make this economy work for the rest of the world because it's it's incredibly difficult. So oh, si yeah, Simon, to, you to, didn't uh, you didn't get my email before. We don't we don't like the banks on Empire. That's not a <laughs> you're on the wrong show, hey, my friend. <laughs> that have. Crypto work at banks too. I was that guy. <laughs> so like you can hit the institution, love the people. Um, no, to answer your question directly, who's responsible? Law enforcement, governments, legislation says the banks are responsible. The banks have to update okay. that information and they will require it of their customers. So what they'll say is like, let's say um, oil companies now going to move more than, I don't know, a, a significant amount, like a million dollars they're going to then insist that they send all of those documents again before they'll move that amount. Or if they do anything that's out of the ordinary, like they're suddenly trying to move 2 billion and they never do that. Like that looks weird. Why are you doing that? Can I go through all of your KYC? Can you send me your shareholding agreements? But then again, somebody at the bank has got to go through all of those and make sure it, it adds up because there isn't one database somewhere that says who all the people are that own all of the companies in all of the world. Each country has its own and they all look a little bit different. And it gets more complicated by the fact that when you're dealing with um, you know, non-Unicode standard names like Arabic, like Cyrillic, like many others, Swift, the network can't carry uh, those, mm -hmm. those uh, characters. So you'll have something that doesn't match the Swift transaction from the passport. And so now the banks are having to go do the detective work on all of that. Is this really that person or not? And they're doing the scan of a passport, which might not always be the highest quality scan. So, I mean, they're in a hard spot. This is, I should say though, FinTech has done a pretty good job in the last few years. 
Um, there's a lot of AI and a lot of software that will scrape all of this information on behalf of the banks. It will um, it kind of risk score it. So software has, has come some of the way, but the issue isn't really the software. It's how companies are formed and uh, the fact that in a state like Delaware, it's super easy to open uh, a company. And in the Cayman, it's super easy. And in the UK, it's, it's like a hundred pounds to open a company and the level of checks that go into that are quite limited. So it's kind of government stuff mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that, and, and the banks are on the hook for it here. Um, so not to make the government the bad guy, but like that is a big, big loophole that people sort of allowed to happen because it was politically convenient that very wealthy people could exploit those loopholes with the right lawyers to move money around the world to avoid a little bit of tax occasionally. Yeah. Um, but that's a different yeah, thing when you're trying to evade sanctions. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to go there. I know you wanted to go to the Russian side of the equation. So why don't we spend a moment there and then and then come back for a full circle of how the actual sanctions might work. So historically, what happened was like HSBC in the UK has to rely on the Russian bank to perform all of its own checks when it was receiving the money or if it was going to send any money back to the UK. And this is probably the biggest risk is now Russia's uh, Russian bank's customer is going to send money back to the UK. Um, Then what you would do as a bank is you would go sit with that bank and you would get super comfortable that they're doing KYC extremely well that their customer due diligence works that you'd watch them do transaction monitoring and then you sort of end up relying on them a little bit to do their job well now you're still going to make sure that when something comes in that looks suspicious you're going to do your job as well like the fact that you rely on them is not enough but to some extent you can't kyc each one of their customers you have to take the information from them or ask for that information from them they ultimately, at some level, the Russian bank has to have done its job. So that would how it would be work how it would work historically. The fact that they've now got a ban from the SWIFT network, which is um, essentially saying I can't deal with that Russian bank at all, then possibly the simplest way to identify that would be to look for the the SWIFT BIC. I don't know if you've ever made an international wire, but you see the SWIFT BIC, oh, yeah. the bank yeah. identification code. Mm-hmm. Okay, the spare banks bank identification code has come up. We should probably hold this transaction, or we should probably look into it if it's you know for humanitarian aid, or if there's any exceptions in the rules. Um, then we could just go block it. So blocking a bank from SWIFT is actually relatively doable. It's the exceptions and the edge cases that become difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so in this context, like what, maybe walk us through uh, your understanding of how these sanctions uh, are put into effect. As I understand it, there's a whole set of contracts that have already been in place. A lot of it is tied to na- natural resources. So, you know, say mm-hmm. that you're a company in oil, like in, in London and Glencore, for instance, a huge commodities trader. It has a whole host of contracts that have been arranged. And now you need to settle them over the ne- course of the next six months because they've been historical contracts. There's like a whole set of accounts payable receivables that need to be settled at some point, but there's an enforcement action that says like, there's a blockage yeah. now. So you've got, SWIFT does is ultimately at the bottom of a lot of complex transactions, right? It, it, it And then all beneath SWIFT, of course, is the Nostra Vostras, the, the Vostras everywhere, and those pools of liquidity. 
above that are these really complex transactions. So uh, even something where I'm buying oil futures or um, I have some sort of margin calls back and forth, that contract could have been agreed in good faith in 2019. Um, it could have been agreed three months ago. Um, it could have daily or intradaily settlements and, and uh, margin calls. And I would process those via SWIFT and those might have been legitimate at the time. Now I'm still, I have a notification as a bank in my system to keep doing these transactions, but can I find the original contract? Can I figure out how to unwind it? Can I figure out who needs to get what? How do I even pause that thing if some of it's even automated? There are a lot of operational questions that sort of come up because that contract was written in like probably the English language. And at the back of it, it had some details that somebody keyed into a system that were held on a spreadsheet somewhere else that then was like a certain forget and is, is being automated. So the complexity of, and that's just a simplified example, the complexity of uh, interest rate swaps, of credit default swaps, of all of these sorts of things that are happening in the financial market on a regular basis. It's not like we have one giant ledger that everybody can go just query and see what the smart contract says. It's the opposite of that. There is no smart contract. There is a legal prose contract, and it's probably sitting in a filing cabinet somewhere or a PDF somewhere. So now I have to figure out what the PDF said to figure out what I do to unwind it. That's step number one. And then step number two is, um, what does that? What do the sanctions actually mean for this? And which company does this really apply to? Because uh, there are companies that are incorporated in the US that have subsidiaries in Russia. Do I sanction that because they're dealing in commodities? Like, where's the limit here? Where's the line? So one, what does the contract say? And two, where's the line? I think it's extremely operationally challenging. So when we like, so the, so the sanctions came down on, I think it was OFAC identified 11 Russian entities as being owned or controlled by the, um, uh, I forget the actual name, but it's like, it was like Spurbank is like Russia's largest financial institution. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, there's like the public joint stock company, Ross Telecom is Russians, lar Russia's largest telecommunications company. There's like the largest hydroelectricity company, the world's largest diamond mining company, Al Rosa, uh, which is responsible for 90% of Russia's diamond, diamond mining capacity. Um, they got put on now the OFAC sanctions list. What does, does, does this relate to SWIFT or is this a separate thing being on the OFAC list? Again, I'm sure that's a really dumb question, but so yeah, no, it's a great question. Being on the OFAC list is essentially just being on a giant naughty list, and then the banks have to scrape that and pick it up and figure out what that means. So if I'm on that OFAC list, now the banks have to go update all of their systems to look for the name on that list in any transaction. Um, so if they, it's easier with banning a bank because I can just ban that bank identification code and just. It's done. And depending on the sophistication of the bank's individual systems, they probably have some automation that can screen for company names, company identifiers um, of those lines and just automatically flag those for investigation and follow-up. But it's the investigation and follow-up that comes from that, that that's, that's hard. So uh, somebody was going to be making an ongoing payment to uh, yeah one of those companies you just mentioned, like Sparebank or, or something else. Then... I would see that they were trying to make it to that company. I would flag that transaction uh, as, as a potential sanctions hit. I would then probably 
hold that transaction and potentially even block it and, and then report it. Uh, that would be the, the kind of the internal process. But what, what I was saying a second ago is, is where it gets more complicated, which is you have individuals that own large shareholdings of companies that are not listed in Russia, um, that are listed maybe on the uh, New York Stock Exchange, that are listed uh, on the, the FTSE, that are listed elsewhere, or that are unlisted, that are private. Um, and so going deeper and deeper down that list of entities gets harder and harder as, as you kind of go. So the sanctions list kind of starts at the very top. It starts with the biggest names, the biggest ones, and it hopes to inflict enough damage that you get a regime to really think differently about what it's doing in the process of doing that. It is not a sophisticated tool um, in terms of, with no nuance. And I think that lack of nuance leaves the people in banks and the banks themselves wondering, so when's it okay and when's it not? Because it's very clear who the list of companies are on the sanctions list, but that's a moving target because that list has been added to day after day, week after week. So did something slip through and that went on a day later and all of, all of these sorts of challenges. But your description of the process is, is not wrong. Like it's, here's, here's a company that's on the list. I pick it up. I see that in the transaction. I say, no, thank you. Like mm -hmm. the, when you're on the list and you're a company, it's quite easy. It's then what are the other entities that they own and who are the people that own that company? And am I blocking those? Blocking people is a lot, lot harder than blocking like a company in this case. All right, friends, quick break to share some exciting DeFi updates from Avalanche, which is one of the fastest and the most eco-friendly smart contract platforms out there. If you haven't been keeping up with the DeFi innovation on Avalanche, it is madness. There are new DeFi protocols launching on Avalanche on a daily basis. The ecosystem is getting pretty incredible. I thought I'd call out like three different projects that I'm keeping an eye on right now. The Platypus Wars are heating up on the new stable swap protocol. Dexalot is launching soon. They've got this unique price discovery mechanism and an on-chain limit order book. I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, and then also Trader Joe just launched a brand new set of tokenomics to participate in token launches, stablecoin farming and governance tokens. Really, really interesting innovation coming out of the DeFi space on Avalanche. Uh, and then also just beyond DeFi innovation, there's a study I thought you guys might find interesting. The Crypto Carbon Ratings Institute assessed the carbon efficiency of six of the leading networks they found that avalanche consumes 35,000 times less energy than ethereum and 200,000 times less than bitcoin obviously go do your own research there's this study uh, from the crypto carbon ratings institute that is ccri you can go read it uh, on your own but if you guys want to build DeFi products if you want to use DeFi and want to do it in an eco-friendly way do it on avalanche now let's get back to the show how um there's been talks uh, and, and i'm not an expert on any of this but uh, of when we try to impose sanctions uh, on a country like Russia, in this case, um, there are alternatives to SWIFT. Um, there are ways that uh, you can prepare for the ultimate blockage of, of being able to interact in this system. And so I'm curious if you can spend a moment uh, talking about how a country like Russia or oligarchs, for instance, might circumvent swift and still manage to continue to operate and and carry out certain financial functions and transactions yeah so there's no reason why a bank couldn't do the nostra vostra thing without using swift messaging they could do it 
telex they could do it over a phone conversation there's, there's nothing to prevent direct wires in that sense swift is a standard for bank messaging and it's a network that that everybody uses but you could the banks can still technically move money if they wanted to so if there was some tiny bank in some other regime that was not sanctioned that was willing to be a partner the russian banks could use something like that so that that's technically possible in the true peer-to-peer sense there's also, you know, when it comes to the oligarchs, they are the masters of these complex hierarchies. And I'm willing to bet most of their money wasn't in Russia anyway. It was probably held in US dollars and at a bank somewhere in the West. So you saw um, one of the uh, one of the oligarchs, Roman Abramovich, owns the soccer club in the UK, Chelsea, um, at Chelsea FC. Uh, and he's now put that up for sale and he's been selling lots of his houses. Uh, London property became an asset class for the world super rich, frankly. Um, and there's a lot of um, rumoured and alleged dirty money in London that's been held as property. So what do you do about that? If you really want to hurt the oligarchs, you probably have to go after them in London more than you do in Russia. So that's where the the sort of Mm-hmm. legislators come into this a little bit because you the law enforcement and the banks can't really do that if if there's no sanction against you know a bank in the UK or property holding in the UK and if people came here under legal process and due process at the time then we need to pass a new law to to be able to go mm-hmm. deal with that so the oligarchs also have the best lawyers in the world they have the best accountants in the world they can pay the money for it. If there is a loophole, they will find it. And there, it's very, very hard to trace money in this financial system because it's there are so many bits of it that are covered with paper. There's not like, again, there's not that one global permissionless transparent ledger here that kind of allows you to follow the money. You know, the reason the DOJ yeah. is able to connect, uh, do, bust all of those big darknet markets is because whilst they don't know who did it, they can follow the money and see the activity and guarantee that those records have not been changed. Whereas how do I know that a bank wasn't coerced into changing its records? How do I know that that paper trail is for real or was a forgery? Uh, so there's there's a lot of questions in, in the existing system. Yeah, I wanted to ask you exactly about if you were to imagine a different system using the tools that we have today, meaning a public transparent, immutable ledger, Um, because, you know, if you're an oligarch, you've been doing this and preparing for this eventuality over the last 10 years, right? And this idea of what constitutes a beneficial owner, well, I mean, I was just thinking about this. It's like, well, what's to stop an oligarch like Putin, for instance, from using other beneficial owners that might not be as problematic and then just using them as shadows, you know, as, as front facing quote, quote, beneficial owners. But the reality is you have some sort of side agreement with a particular person that might be from, I don't know, France or from Germany. Um, and the SWIFT network has no no way to truly, truly go deep and, and understand what the intricate relationships are between beneficial owners. Like ultimately a lot of this could be forged and just never updated. And it just seems to me like... Uh, you know, okay, you're you're dealing with the constraints of paper and and legal documentation, and you have to somewhat trust that it's not perfect. But I guess it's the, what you're saying it's it's the best that we has been historically possible, um, and and that's what we have to deal with. 
Yeah, each node, if you think about it, can only see its own transactions and it's as good as the data it's been able to gather. And the data it's been able to gather is limited and paper-based. Um, and the transactions it can see are the ones it has with its peers. Uh, now, Swift did introduce something called uh, GPI, Global Payments Initiative, which is an API that should allow you to route transactions and see where they're going. They wanted to build a KYC registry um, where banks would be able to sort of uh, work with each other to pull KYC documents in an automated fashion, but that never got off the ground. Something like that, actually, you could imagine would be would be potentially helpful if it was done in the, done in the right way. Um, but I'm I'm a privacy advocate. Like, why does there have to be a global database with everybody's personal information on it if they've done nothing wrong? Like, actually, shouldn't that be something I own? But there'd be due process to unlock that. Should I demonstrate through my network activity that I've done some negative transactions or something that's extremely suspicious in a multi-sig? kind of arrangement. So what I what I think would be interesting is if there was this global permissionless, transparent, near free, near instant rail that everybody could use that looked a little bit like we insert your favorite crypto network here. Uh, because whether it's Etherscan or SolScan or whatever else, I can see every transaction ever in real time. Right. And that's kind of scary because it's super easy to dox yourself and dox your trades and, and all of that stuff. So you kind of have to protect your privacy. But it's super trivial to see the really dark stuff happening. Um, you can, Chainalysis, you know, a lot, a lot of people um, sort of don't like those guys, but they've proven, if nothing else, that you can absolutely see the negative transactions and you can see what just looks like a trader is going to trade and you can see wash trading and you can see the gray area stuff as well. Mm -hmm. You can see all of that happening and only when it looks like negative activity do you then have to go forward and investigate. Now imagine a world that's sort of a hybrid between these two where you do have endpoints, where you're dealing with companies and significant amounts of capital and countries where you did KYC them. Somebody somewhere knows who they are and you can even declare who's KYC them. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if I had this global, transparent, private rail in which nobody was doxxed, but I did have these endpoints that had been fully KYC'd and under due process, that could be followed up on. Now, that would be fantastic. And, and I think that's entirely possible. And weirdly, when politicians are pushing centralized exchanges to do more around sanctions, that's sort of what they're trying to get at, but it, they're sort of using a sledgehammer to crack a nut because the nuance always gets lost in this debate um, because they want to do it by KYCing somebody that is transacting anonymously in the, in, on the network rather than ha having it happen at the endpoint. And that that could ruin the whole thing for everybody because then it's not an international thing, it's, it's a national thing. So I do think it's possible to build something like that. And if I was sufficiently motivated to really go uh, solve this problem and mess with Russia, I'd do it on a US dollar rail. I'd launch a US dollar stable coin because everybody in the world wants access to dollars, especially in times of need. We've seen you know, the dollar is once again the safe haven asset in this financial crisis. So the, the thing I would do is I would set outside some rules for what does, uh, what does an official US dollar stablecoin need to look like? And maybe it needs to hold reserves at a regular bank or maybe it needs to follow some other due process. Kind of the, the thoughts off the top of my head. Yeah, Simon, you've got this line, stable coins are a geopolitical weapon that we must deploy now. What, what's, the, what's the thinking behind that? 
Because if you stand back to look at the role of the dollar in the global economy, it's the safe haven asset. Everybody wants it. Like the oligarchs want it. Uh, other countries want it. Investors want it. It's the thing when things go wrong, I kind of want the dollar. What that would give whoever is the issuer of that asset is the ability to set the rules about how that asset is used. So everywhere in the world that dollars are used today, the banks that hold those dollars are subject to United States regulations, OFAC lists, and anything else. So because around 50% of all transactions in the SWIFT network are US dollar, it's the major bridging pair. Like even if you're trying to get from... um, an Angolan a currency in Angola to a currency in the Democratic Republic of Congo, chances are you're going to go through the dollar at some point. So everything touches the dollar, therefore the rules about the dollar touch everything. The problem with that is that only works in this incredibly uh, paper-based, inefficient system that we have today. Now that paper-based, inefficient system is nearly all of the money in nearly all of the world, so it's significant but it has a lot of problems. But if all of those rules applied to this credible alternative, that would be really interesting. Now, the other credible alternative would be something from China, like the Digital Currency Electronic Payment Initiative uh, running on a, on a competitor to SWIFT. We know China is looking to use uh, kind of uh, neo-colonialism, which let's face it, the US did in the Marshall Plan after World War II, but to spread the influence by investing in other countries. Um, uh, building airports, building infrastructure, building roads. And in so doing, they're requiring some of those countries to pay them back in their currency, the yuan. And therefore, people are, they're trying to build the role of the yuan as a reserve currency and a payment network around that would be really, really interesting for them because they don't want to be reliant on the dollar um, because the US gets to all of this control. And that's not something China wants. And, you know, you can make rational arguments for why there shouldn't be one country that controls all of the money in all of the world. So given that, given that there are po- each time you use sanctions the way you do, you make China a little bit more worried. Each time you use this economic weapon, you make China a little bit more worried. And now you have this global powerhouse rising economy that is more and more motivated to use, frankly, much more sophisticated technology in its payment system for the local region that it operates in. So will it do that in the short term? No, but China thinks in centuries, not decades. And I suspect that you would see something like that develop. But the digital currency electronic payment, the the CBDC, is closed. And ultimately, it's overseen by the Chinese government. Everything that transacts through there is completely visible to them in a way that it's just not in the existing system. Sorry, conspiracy theorists, but it's just not because it's so inefficient. Like the the best privacy defense we all have is the fact that the systems are really, really inefficient. Um, But imagine if there was this open, permissionless alternative, much like the internet that was protocol-based, That is something that in an economy that is based on the principles of liberty, the principles of capitalism, the principles of free markets could actually deploy as an economic weapon for innovation. And that really, really excites me because imagine what you could do. Imagine what entrepreneurs would build. Imagine what we would try and solve if we unleashed that. And I believe open systems will always be closed systems over the long haul. Uh, I I really, really do. Um, Yes, you'll get centralizing forces on top of them and that's always a risk. 
But as a country level infrastructure, that would be hugely exciting. Before going into the open systems, because I want to talk about that in a second, it's what you're talking about is basically a double-edged sword, right? Like what the more what I'm hearing is like the more that the West enforces sanctions against Russia and you know maybe a Ch China eventually and things like that, the more that they are going to try avoiding SWIFT and building their own systems. Yes. And I mean, this is new to me. I I guess I didn't know this, but it sounds like China's building their thing called SIPS, you said, which I just Googled it, cross-border interpayment payment interbank payment system. And it looks like today SIPS is pretty small, but the more that we enforce sanctions, the more that that grows and maybe Russia goes onto that system and more and more and more countries who want to get out of this like uh, US dollar system go on to this other system. Is that the is that your argument? Is that what I'm hearing? There's a risk okay. of that. Now, there's an important nuance that SIPS is a payment system, not a messaging system. So it really does move money and it does sort of not just do the messaging. Uh, and it's more like clearing and settlement. So it would look more like a Euro clear. So that's a nuance. But my point was, would you expand that out? Would you increase it? Yes, absolutely. If there's if there's a compelling alternative for the region and some folks in the region are already using it, it becomes increasingly tempting to, to use that knowing that you know you you might do something that in your eyes is absolutely fine and in another's <clears throat> eyes is, is really really not mm -hmm. uh, and yeah i think you do end up with that double-edged sword absolutely yeah we talk a lot about uh centralization risk in crypto and i am curious to understand who controls swift uh obviously it is a messaging protocol that you know, is is that the United States? Is that NATO? Is that a governing body? Most transactions, in my, my understanding on SWIFT network, happen and are settled on US dollars. And so I am curious to understand, like, who has the ultimate authority to say that BIC no longer? Uh, you know, is that the... Depends on the jurisdiction. So if you're transacting between Germany and Russia, does Germany mm -hmm. have authority at that point to, to regulate that said messaging and ultimate settlement between Vostra and Nostra, or is it more a consortium, i.e. Security Council that says this country, this particular sanctioned individual, company, whatever, can no longer transact? Uh, who, who controls the ultimate decision-making in this, in this messaging network? So governments control the sanctions lists. Okay. Um, and so the United States sanctions list is OFAC, and because anything that touches a US dollar is subject to OFAC okay. checks, right. then because nearly everything ends up hitting nearly the dollar, is, is dollar yeah. de facto, the United States has massive, mm -hmm. massive influence. Yeah. But the yeah. euro is about 30% um, mm -hmm. of the SWIFT network. So the European uh, Parliament would also, and the European uh, kind of, Brussels uh, Commission yeah. would also set uh, a lot of that control as well okay. and uh, on their sanctions list. But there have been examples where like the European Union um, put together a, a sort of, I don't want to call it a backdoor, but it sort of ended up being that, where you, through European banks, you, it was still possible to transact with Iran um, because mm -hmm. they had various needs for energy supply and other reasons. And so this was part of um, Putin's calculation and the Russian governments is, you know, they, they'd taken their central bank and they'd bought a lot of gold, they bought a lot of dollars, thinking, yes, sanctions would come, but because they supply so much energy to Europe, Right. that Europe would sort of let them get away with it and it'd be sort of mm -hmm. fine. They annexed Korea in 2000, uh, Crimea, sorry, in 2014. They did that, see yeah. some sanctions start to appear, 
but it was a slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it from a Russian perspective, you had the West that appeared divided. You know, Europe and the US had largely fallen out um, post-Trump and, and, and everything that had happened there. Mm -hmm. And they were sort of not getting on in the same way. You had the sort of lukewarm sanctions for annexing Crimea and then um, Donetsk and, and those other regions and skirmishes. It looked like uh, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan that the US was not the military power in the region that it was wanted to be in the future. Mm -hmm. So was it really going to react? And I think that was a miscalculation because we've seen with the severity of these sanctions uh, that that it you know it really does take it seriously, um, but in a different way to 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 what I think was expected. Yeah, and then I mean it's hard to envision this alternative SIPs to really take off unless you believe I think two things: one that you know somehow the dollar doesn't loses its place as the sort of de facto like safest reserve currency, um, and that more and more. And that the the yuan or the ruble or whatever maybe the the yuan is becomes the replaces that, and then somehow that the U.S. really loses its place as the hegemony of, of this world and Russia and or China rises to that. But it's it's kind of, I mean, do you, in what version of this world do you envision Swift kind of losing its its role and status in international commerce and just everything really? So the interesting thing is events have turned since I wrote the Substack and just the sheer demand and influx for the US dollar, interestingly, has probably bought the dollar a lot more time. If you wind the clock back just two, three weeks, we'd gone through trillions and trillions of dollars of um, money being printed. The US government with record levels of sovereign debt interest rates starting to rise, and the balance sheet of the US looking weaker and weaker with the passing day. Uh, the US withdrawing from Afghanistan, uh, spreading less time overseas. Uh, the euro starting to rise as um, something that was used on SWIFT and being held by central banks and the yuan starting to rise. So we were seeing a more balkanized world. We were seeing this split where the dollar was still major, but it was falling as a share of transactions and the others were rising as a share of transactions. So that was realistic and, and possible. And yet, since this crisis, the flight to the dollar has been dramatic versus everything else. Now, interestingly, um, sterling and euro haven't done bad. There's been a lot of outflows from just about every other currency uh, towards sterling and euro as well, but not nearly as much as there has been to the US dollar. So I think it's important to say that like, in a weird way, uh, what what Putin has done and by invading and what Russia has done is shore up the US dollar and unite the West uh, in a way that probably keeps that hegemony strong for, for a little while. But I would still say that uh, you've got to think China does still watch all of this. It, it will think it over the long term and the long horizons. And it has been pushing DCEP and it has been putting its local tech giants on notice Alipay and Tencent have been dealing with issues with the regulators. Uh, its payment systems have come under scrutiny. It's going to send all of its transaction data to the Chinese government now. You would see, if, if I'm reading the tea leaves right, that they're going to push for their payment system, their digital currency to be the default, at least in mainland China. And then in countries that it's sort so of dealing with for trade quite often. So 
it, it's more pushing its currency up over the, the 10, 20 year time horizon. So do we feel it in two years? No, the world looks the same. But the, it's good old fashioned compounding, right? Uh, 7% a year feels like nothing until you zoom out. And that, that would be similar here is like the, the changes feel tiny year on year, but actually over decades, they could be really significant. And how long is it going to take to build a new global stablecoin rail and get it real adoption? Like we have to be thinking in decades with this sort of thing. Um, and there are some very simple steps we could take. I also think about the the simple things like the amount of um, money that's been donated to the Ukrainian government from the crypto community. Just a phenomenal that um, that's been done. But think about the people in Ukraine day to day, if they could hold on to US dollars at this point, and what would right, that yeah. allow them to do? If, you know, that, and, and how would you do that with the existing system? I don't know that it's possible. Yeah. In the, in the case of, um, there is this narrative going around and percolating, which is how does crypto, um, on one end, it is very positive that we're able to you know, coordinate and move capital to people that need it the most and fund resistance efforts. And, and that's all nice and, and dandy. On another end of the spectrum, you have the possibility to circumvent and SWIFT and then sanctions. Um, if, for instance, an oligarch were to sell his property in London, he might, you know, decide to accept payment in Bitcoin uh, and or on a decentralized stablecoin. Maybe not USDC because that could be frozen. But certainly Bitcoin feels like the more obvious um, kind mm -hmm. of settlement in this case. Yes, it's a volatile asset, but look, you're still getting value. And you're still, you know, able to circumvent Swift in that instance. Um, how much do you think that that is a, a credible threat? Um, and, and does that worry you from derailing what I think has been a lot of good work on the regulatory side to for regulators to appreciate that this is a very exciting piece of technology? That it has a lot of potential, but it's not nice when you impose sanctions and all of a sudden people can circumvent them, possibly, by using crypto rails. Yeah, the the risk is there um, in principle and in theory, but I would say if I'm that oligarch, it's probably so much easier for me to use the existing companies of companies of companies I have in the existing system than it is to use Bitcoin. Because with Bitcoin, I'm leaving a trail of breadcrumbs that the law enforcement has forever to investigate. Uh, in the existing system, you can play hide the ball, you know, mm -hmm. cup and ball thing. Like you, it would be so much easier to do. So most of the oligarchs are already in offshore dollars, sterling, euros, um, in, in some sort of safe haven somewhere. Um, and they'll be moving that around and there will be a market for tiny banks in tiny regions to take all of that oligarch money, which they'll happily take and tiny accountancy firms and, and so on. So that would be like, it, it, let's say I, I, you know, my life depended on advising an oligarch tomorrow. I would advise them to do that rather than use Bitcoin for, for that exact reason. Um, and so uh, I hope I'm never in that situation. Um, and then with... Bitcoin, is it theoretically possible that I could evade sanctions? Um, yes, because it's censorship resistant. Like if I go to make a transaction on the Bitcoin network, nobody can stop it if it's a, you know, if I hold the private key and I'm moving it to somewhere else that, that holds the private key and uh, it's non-custodial in the truest sense. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the really interesting thing with Bitcoin is unlike say gold um, or bits of paper or whatever else, 
if I really wanted to go on a plane with a couple of billion dollars on a USB key, I, I can do that um, with Bitcoin. So it doesn't take up a lot of physical space. The, you had a second question, actually, Santiago, which is, do I think it's going to do the, the regulation uh, good work so far? So coming to that, uh, all of the politicians that already wanted to control crypto have already come out and said, uh, you know, like Elizabeth Warren and all those guys, we need every centralized exchange to just cut off Russia. Uh, and we need to make sure that there's no such thing as a, an anonymous non-custodial wallet. Because to them, it doesn't matter what the question is, the answer is KYC. I think that often in these situations, nuance gets lost. Um, and that the value in a open, permissionless, decentralized network is that it works everywhere. And because it works everywhere and it's permissionless, as soon as you're doxxed, you are shit out of luck. Like that's that is just no good yeah. for for anybody, mm-hmm. and nobody wants to use that thing. Like um, for, for commercial reasons, I wouldn't want all of my competitors seeing all of my transactions or mm-hmm. trades. So it becomes unusable in, in that scenario. But because it goes everywhere, it means that the payment rail that I, in this case, the United States, want to see go everywhere. Uh, mean can work in other jurisdictions and can have its rules applied um, where it needs to, but the dollar rule would always be followed so long as it was a dollar stable coin. And that's really, really powerful and really, really interesting. Um, but the, the regulators that were already pushing for it will continue to push for it. But the industry pushback, I think, sometimes has lacked nuance as well. I think Binance came out and said, no, we won't do it. Um, Coinbase said, we we don't want to block an entire country. And there are good humanitarian reasons to not want to block an entire country. But I do think there are there's a reason why sometimes the bankers keep quiet for a little bit. Um, and it's like, read the room. The government is just coming at this right now. I think... A, a more the, the one time when a more blanket statement of like we'll do everything we can to comply we're very concerned with the humanitarian crisis um that this subject people to we believe in the future of crypt like you could have said something a little bit more generic but what you did by saying no we won't do that is make yourself even more of an enemy in a, in a wartime scenario and so i think we've got to just be very thoughtful about you know what's the mood of people at the moment and how do we continue the education game because i do think net net Crypto and, and um, permissionless and decentralization is something that can be better at preventing crime than the system we have. I think I, I definitely agree with you in, in this case where if you have a perfectly transparent system that anyone can, can, can use and it's immutable, right, um, and, and censorship resistant, then as you point out, it is very hard to, yeah, you can interact in the system, but in order to enter, you, there needs to be an on-ramp that does KYC. And and then mm-hmm. the and that is tied to a particular wallet of yours, and so you can regulate the endpoints very easily, um, and and you can monitor these transactions and apply AI and apply a whole host of you know forensic um, tools that are more easily applied in a system like like you know in a public transparent ledger than it is in the current messaging system like swift and i think that's a message that i think we should be impressing on regulators which is like like katie who did you know who was part of the doj enforcement team to to go after silk road any regulators actually try to go after criminal activity in crypto find is sort of like is sort of like their dream because it just becomes way easier to 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 go after these folks and smart criminals as you point out are not using crypto rails 
uh, at all. Uh, it, it's a great way to get caught. You know, it's a great way to leave breadcrumbs forever. And and so I was speaking to uh, somebody in law enforcement, maybe in 2019, uh, who who said to me, Simon, I absolutely love Bitcoin. It's 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 great. I wish I had this in the existing financial system. I really do. Imagine if you had. It should be a regulator's dream. Um, my biggest worry with proliferation of crypto is not preventing crime. It's privacy. And how do we do so thoughtfully? Yeah, I, th I think there is very. I mean, I think we're still far away, but the idea of zero knowledge proofs and. Um, are I think at the forefront of what you could envision a world where, you know, you could use a a system like Tornado, and if you wanted to move back funds to Coinbase, Coinbase immediately would say, "Wait a minute, you've used Tornado at some point, prove." And I think you're able to unshield the particular transaction to prove that it's you and to prove why you're doing it, right, for privacy reasons. And I think that that is, I think, the bright side of of where this all could possibly go. Because as you point out, yeah, like companies might not want to. Uh, move to a system that is open and transparent for competitive reasons and, and a whole host of reasons. And, and high net worth individuals might not want to interact in the system. And, and I get that. But I think there is a path towards getting to a, a probably a hybrid permission system that operates with on an L1 that is credibly neutral and decentralized, but also on, at the user aggregation layer has some sort of batching and privacy that is, you know, a good way to to protect um, and and have some degree of privacy. I think the L1 can and hopefully will continue to be credibly neutral. The token itself might not have to be, um, depending on what your use case is. And this is my point about, like, if you were to bless a particular set, subset of stable coins with a rule set around them, you could also have the token do some of the work for you. Like, it's really interesting, programmable money can identify its own risks as it travels throughout the system. Like that's that's crazy. That's that's really oh, I'm I'm being transacted in this particular way. Whoa, that's weird. I shouldn't be transacted like that. Like cash can't do right. that. Yeah, I mean I think like it's not crazy to assume a world where if you're a government, if you're whatever you can if you want to airdrop particular, you know, money to your citizens or if you're a bank, the smart contract might have the ability, the upgrade ability to say immediately block, you know, you could have a running list of wallets that have been that are on a blacklist, and you can very quickly block um, and freeze, or, or just in some way the smart contract to your my block receiving that, or my block, you know, my I don't want to say freeze that asset unless it's like something like USDC, but you could program some sort of logic to to mimic what you can do in a system like Swift to prevent a certain BIC and, and, and what have you. So I think uh, there is, I think, a path and- uh, Centralized exchanges already yeah, have wallet blacklists. Exactly. Right? And, and, and so what's really interesting, there's um, a company actually I'm wearing their t-shirt at the moment, Sardine AI, um, that does this really interesting sort of uh, mix of crypto forensics and old fashioned forensics. So they do, which you know, the guys at Coinbase and many others do, which is look at how somebody's, their customers using their device, look at uh, where they're using the device, look at is their behavior pattern change. So all of the AI around you know, the customer of, of, their, uh, of the wallet or, or bit of software or whatever else it is. But they also then do the, uh, good fintech sort of uh, anti-money laundering transaction monitoring of the uh, 
traditional fiat rails and they do the monitoring of the kind of Web3 rails and the crypto rails and they put together a complete picture of all of that. Um, and it, again, I think whilst we are in this on-off ramping stage, you need providers who can do that sort of thing. And I think the that's why you know they support MoonPay and many, many others and Unit21 and a few of the folks do, do similar things. But what you'll see is, and I think what the regulators worry is, is if we end up in this pure Web3 world where non-custodial wallet can be transacted with a non-custodial wallet and you can go about your whole life without ever having to off-ramp again, like what happens then? And I still think you can be compatible with KYC AML in that world. But I think the way you do it is you get to exactly your point. You set some rules about, well, what type of legal entity, what type of business, what type of person um, has to use what type of token for what type of transaction. And then you can only buy certain goods. You can only make certain types of transaction if you use that token. And then that's when the rules get automatically. At some point where where, where this becomes, you know, you can't, you at some point will need to off ramp. At some point, you will have to interact with a merchant. If you want to live in the meat space, not just in the metaverse, you, yeah. you, you know, you have certain needs to sustain yourself. And so uh, even if you're, you're hiding behind a ultimate beneficiary who's giving the front, you're sending money to them and they're buying goods for you in the, in the real world. There is that transaction that you can go back to. Right. And so it, it happens somewhere. And so again, I'm a big believer in, in, in you, you can use a lot of forensic tools. Again, I think the message here that I want to impress with regulators and anyone listening is really, there is this ability if we if we are to look, I forget the, the degree of fines that banks have received over the years because they haven't been as compliant in this, in, in enforcing OFAC. And there's a lot of corruption. At the end of the day, you know, a lot of these, as you point out, small banks might be corrupted they might be owned by people that might be sanctioned. And so it has a conflict of interest. And there's a whole host of problems whenever you're relying on human, there's human errors and there's human corruptibility. And you would always, it's not to say that crypto is a perfect system, but I think it is an improvement to the existing cumbersome network that we have today and solutions like Swift. And we talk a lot about gas fees, right? Which is, you know, at any moment in time, sending a stablecoin might cost you, I don't know, four, five, 20, 30 dollars. But Swift, uh, as you point out, I think you're excellent blockbuster. It's not necessarily cheap uh, to be interacting in, in the Swift network. If you layer on top the compliance costs, the overhead of these banks, uh, I mean, I think you it's sort of in the order of like 40 to 120 dollars per Swift. I don't know if that's batching a whole host of transactions or per message, um, but it's not, it's not cheap per se. Yeah, that's that's kind of what a corporate would pay for a given transaction, uh, for a large transaction. You as a customer might pay closer to fifteen dollars, and they'll batch mm-hmm. a bunch of those together, um, and you might get it a little bit cheap somewhere else. But that is again because, to your point, the cost of a Swift message, the actual message is not point naught naught you know one dollar like the message is not the problem it's all of that detective work that we talked mm-hmm. about and then uh, there's a great study um i'll cite it for your show notes i don't have it to hand that suggested that the global anti-money laundering policy and regulation is 99 percent ineffective so imagine if you had a car that didn't work 99 percent of the time yeah, no that's like that would be pretty annoying. That would that would get yeah. really frustrating. So uh, the estimates are that anywhere between two trillion and five trillion dollars are laundered on an annual basis, mm-hmm. and of that we catch about one percent, and of that we successfully prosecute one percent. This is 
I think second only to the climate crisis, the thing that should be headline news every day, no matter what else is going on in the world, is that the main system is the world's most ineffective policy experiment. And we need an upgrade. And the technologies, the ideas that we see in stablecoins and in crypto could be a dramatic upgrade for the global financial system. And yet it seems to have this position as the exact opposite, as the pariah, as the negative thing. And when you really sit with somebody and they're willing to work through the nuance with you, they get it. They have those aha moments, but it's happening very slowly and very gradually. And I do think that comes from a place of fear. That comes from some places of genuine like risk. Uh, there are those risks out there, but those risks need to be put into the context. And net-net, uh, which is a banker term, uh, for your Nostra Vostra movements, net net, you end up in a much better place if you adopt something that looks and feels like crypto. I think you upgrade finance for the world if you adopt something that looks and feels a bit like crypto. Yeah, absolutely. I've always tried to, I, I come from crypto finance and to my more skeptical banker friends, um, I always tell them, imagine, imagine a world where you have perfect, transparent collateral that you can inspect 24 seven, 365, or perhaps the Russians right now that are trying to withdraw cash from their bank. It's a good moment to remind them, like, do you understand what happens when you deposit your money in a bank that you're trusting? And, and I think people that have lived through 2008, um, that thought, you know, that Lehman would never go down or people that have lived in jurisdictions that, you know, ultimately don't have a strong legal, uh, frameworks and and financial institutions they feel the risk much more so and and i think i think we've been in this state of the world increasingly so that even in places like the u.s there has been a degrading trust in financial institutions it's also very ineffective i think in COVID times you know people are struggling to get checks in the mail i mean the fact that we're still writing checks in the mail when you can send a stablecoin transaction to me is just baffling and so i think you know ultimately that I can't think of an industry that has the most, like more friction. Well, perhaps to the healthcare system, in the U S is kind of broken, but absent that, mm -hmm. I think finance is like such an antiquated industry. Um, so I guess like, you know, to round out this, this discussion, like w from a policy perspective, you could wave a wand, like, like what would you, where would you start to, I mean, th there's a whole education that is going on by the folks like a blockchain association and people that are trying to, educate regulators about the, the potential of this technology to, to help them see the benefits that we've discussed in, in this podcast. But I'm curious, like, where are some of the areas, high impact areas that, where you would start to try to catalyze some change? Number one, I would set out a framework for regulated stablecoins ASAP. Um, and I would publish that and I would just rush that to market and uh, see what see the benefits start to come from that. Number two, uh, I would update KYC and AML rules for crypto to use the crypto native technologies uh, much, much more than they currently do. Um, that you can have uh, privacy assured uh, transaction monitoring, sanction screening in a completely different way. And uh, there's a there's a really interesting project called Barata. I don't know if you guys saw this, Barata.xyz. Um, what they do is they issue to a MetaMask or a Web3 wallet a non-transferable NFT that has been KYC'd. 
So I go to Coinbase, I sign up, I get my MetaMask, and I can use my Coinbase KYC to say that this MetaMask wallet is in fact this person at Coinbase. But to Etherscan, it just looks like I've got this NFT that nobody else can, a non-transferable NFT. It doesn't say who I am. I'm not doxxed, nothing like, a blue like that. Bag, so know. I do think you can solve for web. Yeah. And there might be many other good solutions. That's mm-hmm. just one that mm-hmm. came to mind. So number one, define stablecoin framework. Number two, nuanced KYC AML. And number three would be uh, kind of nuanced transaction monitoring rules for crypto exchanges. Uh, and then number four would be like, go look at what a dollar-based stablecoin rule, uh, sorry, rail would look like for the world. Like a lot of Russians are trying to opt out, you know, mom and pop are trying to opt out of the ruble and they want to hold on to the US dollar. If they held on to that in something like a US dollar uh, stablecoin, you can make sure that that wasn't moving in and out of Russia, but they effectively opted out of the Russian the state, state and right. towards the US state. Correct. Like geopolitically, that's not a bad no, thing. Okay. If I can just indulge me for a second on the euro dollar. So post-World War II, there were a lot of foreign banks that were ended up holding do- dollars because of the Marshall Plan. So Europe was being rebuilt, and it was much easier for them to hold on to dollars when their local currencies were, were absolutely trashed to pay for things that had been paid for by the US in dollars. They just paid straight out in dollars or, or held in dollars. That's when it became known as the euro dollar market or, or the euro dollar. And the euro dollar is very popular amongst banks because they can just trade dollars back and forth amongst each other. And now it's outside of Europe. It's all over the world. Any non-US bank holding dollars has euro dollars. Now, I think about stable coins as a euro dollar for everybody else. What if there was a stable coin that allowed somebody in a failed state or a failing state or an heavily sanctioned state as an individual to opt out on a humanitarian basis? Is that a bad thing? Should a Russian uh, national who has done absolutely nothing wrong but try and make ends meet every day be able to opt out of that and, and protect their assets away from the ruble? Like, I don't have an issue with that. Maybe there's something I'm not seeing, mm-hmm. but actually, as a geopolitical weapon, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think uh... that has unintended consequences. The US government you know, doesn't want to go mess with other countries' currencies and doesn't want to actively set up in competition. But it turns out the euro dollar was a happy accident. The US initially tried to stop the euro dollar from happening and then realized, wait a second, this is kind of beneficial. Maybe we should just let it continue. I suspect the system will eventually happen here. Yeah, I mean, if, 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 you're, a, if you're a central bank, like, there's nothing great than having uh, increased demand for your, your currency. Like if you're treasury, like why wouldn't you? Like and, and a stable coin like USDC regulated, which uh, is backed dollar for dollar uh, in, in in a bank and is regulated, um, is just a digital dollar, right? And so it, it's just uh, it just further entrenches the position of the dollar on a global scale. Um, and, and how many merchants? I mean, just think about how many people across the world, anywhere you travel, you want to pay in dollars. People ninety nine percent of the time would accept the dollar over the local shitcoin, um, and so. You know, it, it's sort of like a, if you're treasury, this is a dream scenario. Plus, you can monitor everything, right? And so, and the local state might prefer that because then they have a perfect view into the shadow economy. And so, there's a whole host of benefits that I think most people kind of don't appreciate. But, uh, I mean, I'm, yeah. as an anecdote, um, I was speaking to uh, the chief financial officer of one of the world's largest tech companies uh, who has an app store. 
Um, they, they were telling me many years ago that uh, if somebody buys an app for 99 cents in Vietnam, then they have to acquire that via Swift ultimately. So they might have a local bank that acquires it, but they have to acquire that. Now, if that person needs a refund, uh, then they have to do a Swift transaction in the opposite direction to move the money back to that local bank to, to hit the payout. So I paid, what, $40, $50 for the first transaction and maybe $40, $50 for the other transaction. The other thing they said to me, which really stuck with me, which is um, when I send a Swift transaction, I don't know what route it's going to take. I don't know when it's going to get there. And I don't know how much it's going to cost because each time it goes there, it might go to a different bank. It might take a different route depending on the day and depending on the network. So for corporations as well, like an upgraded dollar rail would be hugely beneficial. And then how that goes into local currencies could be could be really, really interesting. So I think there's a lot of advantages and, and benefits to moving that direction, but we are still in early days and, and the best network effect is capital. Like the network effect of all of the money in all of the world sitting in this system will take a long time to disrupt. But I think unless we're having conversations like this and, and kind of educating people and, and showing them those benefits, then you know, we'll never get there. And that's why I think number one policy, like magic wand is set out a stable coin framework, really get thoughtful about the roles that you want to bake into those stable coins as well um, and the risks that you're preventing in the process. As an aside, and perhaps the last question of this framework, do you think that USDC perhaps is the most viable alternative or the most viable candidate for this as a, as as the preferred stablecoin in this system? I think the model USDC users or something like USDP from Paxos or, or, mm-hmm. or things things of that nature um, are, uh, are probably the best candidates. Something where it's easy to understand for a regulator, it's one-to-one backed right. um, and you can set rules around it. I can imagine Maker one day getting there as well. Like I don't think that's beyond the realms of possibility um, and there might be others that could get there. But the point would be that you would have a framework that sets out the rules about how this coin must be reserved and you would set rules about um, how compliance yeah, like is baked in. And I think if you do both of those things, then it could be there could be a few interesting candidates for, for who gets to play that role. Um, I wanted to point out, uh, there's this fascinating Twitter account that just spun up that is tracking the activity of all the oligarchs, yachts, and private planes. Wow. And I've been monitoring over the last like six days. And to your point around, it's been interesting to see where they've been going. And there's a lot of movement in places like, you know, a lot of the Caribbean nations that have, you know, banks, they're going to San Francisco and New York and then the, in the British Virgin Islands and, and the Maldives. And it's been um, pretty interesting to observe how they've scrambled across the world, probably checking in, in their local banks. Uh to to understand uh, their oh, movement. That's a great so, point. I, yeah, I, it, love it, this, I love that. This account has gone from zero followers, I think, to like over 250,000 in like five Well, years. it's going to double after this episode, that's for sure. But, you know, uh, Caribbean banks um, may be a subsidiary of a major bank brand that you've heard of. You know, maybe there's like a Scotia or something like that. But ultimately, mm-hmm. they're a glorified branch and they are woefully underfunded because they have their own Swift BIC. They were originally a local bank. Right, yeah. um, and, and I don't mean to pick on Scotia. Maybe Scotia is completely different. I have no knowledge on this, right? But but it would look like a big brand in some cases, 
But underneath it, the systems that they have might nearly all be paper. And the budget they have to upgrade their IT infrastructure is almost nothing because they've got 100,000 customers each, maybe, maybe if that. And then also the people that work for them, yeah, they're doing a great job. They're doing everything they can. They're under an awful lot of pressure. But are they the best in the world at preventing this kind of financial crime? No, those people are sitting in New York and London or somewhere else. So because they've gone to the global financial center and they may have even left the Caribbean to go do that. So you see this quite often. Now, there are obviously exceptions to this, and, and I can almost hear people in some of the Caribbean states and, and some of those um, jurisdictions saying, hey, no, actually, we've gotten quite sophisticated. Yes, there are exceptions, but also there's a reason the yachts are going to these places. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, this has been a fascinating discussion, Simon. I, I've certainly learned a lot about SWIFT um, and and. And most importantly, I think this discussion hopefully helps people understand how antiquated it is, how perhaps easily it is to circumvent it. And, um, you know, at some point we'll link in the show notes. I mean, banks like from JP Morgan, every major financial institution I think has been fined for not complying, for not doing the, the proper things. I don't think it's necessarily on them. I think it's just a system that is very slow, is very antiquated, increasingly very cumbersome to kind of manage because there is this paper trail, this beneficiary um, things that can be easily kind of worked around by sophisticated people. Um, and, and so I think the, it's due for an update and I think it's not uh, like in, like so many things in FinTech, it's trying to like do a patchwork of things. Uh, but I think we're coming to a point and I don't know if it's now or in five or 10 years where it's a totally total redesign of this messaging system and perhaps moving towards an open, transparent, uh, system uh, like Ethereum or like Solana that can process and batch a lot of these transactions while also being compliant um, and preserve privacy and have all the benefits uh, and also be much cheaper uh, to interact with at a global scale. That's my hope for the world, Santiago. I really hope we get there. Um, and I hope this is an impetus for it. Like, it, you know, there's a 0.01% chance anything like that ever happens, but I'm I'm pulling for it because I think it would be massively impactful for the world. It could really make a difference. Yeah. Where can people, um, I mean, you obviously will link to the show notes, uh, your Substack, which I think is, is, is a lot of a source of wealth of information on, on, on fintech. But where can people find you? Where can people learn more about what you do and, and keep up to date on, on, on your thinking? Yeah, sure. Uh, S.Y. Taylor on Twitter is probably the easiest way to see what I'm talking about or thinking about at any one given time. Um, 11FS is 11FS.com. Um, and we have a podcast, Blockchain Insider. My co-host is Kai Sheffield from Visa, who some of you may have heard oh. of. Um, so we, we go into sort of more of the fintech topics on a, on a regular basis. Uh, so do check that out as well. We can also link, uh, we'll, we'll link in the show notes just... Uh... Simon's great, great blog, uh, Substack post where we pulled a lot of this info from and that kind of I'm kicked off this conversation. I'm way more articulate so. in the written form where I've taken eight <laughs> hours over it. So please do all, check that out, guys. Are all my friend. Yeah, awesome. Well, Simon, thanks so much for uh, for coming on. I, I took a backseat the last 30 minutes because I was just, you guys were on a roll, but uh, this has been an awesome conversation. I also learned a lot, so. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, man.